Hello there, and welcome back to Peace in Their Time, episode 99, Odds and Ends and Miseries. With the victories over the revolting peasants and striking workers, as well as the establishment of party discipline after the 10th Congress, Lenin had every reason to look forward to finally leading a Russia not embroiled in crisis. If he had hopes like that, though, for real, uh, they weren't going to last long as 1921 progressed. While the start of the new economic policy, the NEP, that had been declared during the Congress, had promised a liberalization of the agricultural economy, the changes came way, way too late to stop what was coming. Years of forcible requisitions during the war communism years had left the countryside stripped bare, and Mother Nature itself turned against the farmlands of southern Russia. Intense heat waves dried up the soil, producing a bad crop in 1920 and then a disastrous one in 1921. Much of southern Ukraine, the southern Urals, the North Caucasus, and most terribly the Volga River Valley were stricken with crop failures. By early 1921, a quarter of all peasants in the country were actively starving to death. Over the course of the next two years, 35 million people suffered from intense hunger in Russia, and 5 million would lose their lives due to outright starving to death or through some other malady brought about by malnutrition. That second concern wasn't a small one either. People's bodies became so degraded that they couldn't fend off diseases, such as cholera and typhus. This became such a huge issue that Lenin was forced to order a quarantine of the Volga region, an area over twice the size of the UK. Two million children were left as orphans, new additions to the millions more children left without families from the Civil War. The peasantry was forced to use any organic material available to make their meals, including grass, weeds, tree bark, even their own thatched roofs. Acorns, sawdust, clay, and disgustingly manure were all ground up to bake into bread. When the way wasn't barred to them, many did try and leave the afflicted areas to get someplace that might have food, but oftentimes they collapsed from exhaustion and died during their travels. Countless many simply gave up and sat still in their homes, waiting to die. In the most extreme examples, people turned to the calories of last resort, cannibalism. This actually got bad enough that the secret police were deployed into the most stricken areas and tasked with guarding graveyards so that robbers were kept away. This wasn't just a few examples blown up into urban legends, mind you. There were thousands of such cases. One man was convicted of the crime and claimed that his entire village was doing it and that their public mess halls served up human flesh as well. And it wasn't just the dead that were targets either. It became dangerous to go out after dark in the countryside, especially for kids, as they could be hunted for their flesh, either to be eaten outright or taken by someone unscrupulous enough to be willing to traffic in the sale of human meat. That all might seem crazy to have happened to such a large extent, but I'm willing to bet that pretty much everybody listening to this hasn't had to face hunger in their lives the way these tens of millions of people faced it. At first, Lenin worked to keep everything hush-hush, as the famine was a blemish on his government's record that couldn't be completely explained away by pointing at the disruptions of the Civil War. Finally, in July 1921, the government acknowledged what was already well underway and getting worse. Acceding to the appeals of Maxim Gorky, who at the time was staying in Italy, his criticism of the government having finally convinced his patron to nudge him off into an unofficial exile, 
Lenin amazingly allowed an independent body of civilians to be formed. This was the All-Russian Public Committee to Aid the Hungry, or the Pomgol for short. Leading Russian figures, both within Soviet Russia and outside it, collected funds and organized relief missions. It was similar to the response of the 1891 famine, and even old Prince Lvov helped collect funds and supplies from his Parisian exile, still doing what he had been best at since the 1891 famine that had gotten him into public service in the first place. While the organization wasn't directly operated by the government, it was overseen by it, and a team of a dozen communists led by Lev Kamenev acted as what were basically commissars to the group. In addition to their efforts, Lenin dispatched his lieutenants on food expeditions across the country. Notably, Felix Szerzynski was sent to Siberia in the winter of 1922 to go from community to community and requisition grain. Yes, the declared NEP had specifically called for that practice to be abandoned, but there was little choice in the matter, and the regime was desperate all over again. And that being said, the new orders coming out of Moscow hadn't been implemented that far out yet, a lag that Zerzhinsky couldn't help but notice with concern during his trip. Siberia also had not been hit by the famine conditions, and therefore the granaries there had enjoyed normal harvests. That was a mixed blessing for the peasants there, as the hungry eye of the state fell upon them. All the old abuses were inflicted upon the communities out east. Arrests, torture, coercion, all in aim of securing the grain needed to feed the cities. And it still wasn't enough. The salvation of millions would, amazingly enough, come from the United States. By 1921, Herbert Hoover was serving as Secretary of Commerce in the cabinet of President Warren Harding, but he also still held the leadership position in the American Relief Administration, or the ARA. I haven't taken a moment to cover that group, and I intend to do that on the upcoming series on the United States, but the ARA was one of the handful of things that actually helped bring stability back to the world. It had been formed in early 1919 with the purpose of helping a starving and dislocated Europe emerging from World War I. For both the victorious and defeated nations, the group was a source of desperately needed aid, and millions of lives were saved as the continent put its agricultural networks back together again. The group's mission was in its closing days when famine hit Russia, and suddenly it had a renewed purpose. Hoover was an unlikely ally for the people of Soviet Russia. He was very much a free market type, and in fact might as well have considered free enterprise sacred. But he also came from a Quaker background that had instilled in him a strong sense of charity, where the rest of the U.S. cabinet balked at the idea of aiding an unrecognized and hostile nation, Hoover pressed forward on the grounds that he was seeking not to prop up the Bolsheviks, but to save millions of common people who would otherwise suffer a slow and miserable death. It was Hoover who actually approached Lenin, at least through representatives who met in Riga. Hoover had two conditions— the first being that the Americans could operate independently and without government interference, and the other being that American citizens arrested in Russia would be freed. Lenin raged and sputtered, but the situation was so grave that the decision was never in doubt. Plus, that had to have been one of the least embarrassing set of concessions he had been forced to agree to in the past four years. Hoover's people went to work immediately, with 300 Americans organizing an army-sized staff of 100,000 Russians across almost 20,000 field kitchens. Tons of grains, milk, sugar, and very importantly for the long term, planting seeds were shipped in. 
the planting seeds donated would secure the harvests of 1922, eliminating the famine by 1923, and allowing the nation to resume agricultural production semi-normally. At its peak, 11 million people were fed every day by the ARA. It was an entirely necessary embarrassment for the regime, but they did not endure it with good grace. At the direction of Stalin, the ARA's activities were closely monitored, and its members were constantly detained for questioning or searches, and oftentimes they were accused of being spies. Deliveries were slowed by snap inspections and denying needed trains for transport. Hoover's conditions were at best only partially met. Moreover, once it became clear that the scale of the relief from the ARA was going to easily dwarf every other source of foreign aid, Lenin wound down the Pomgol. This infuriated both Gorky and Kamenev, who had come around to the work the group had been doing. But Lenin was used to not caring about the opinions of either and shut the organization down. His gratefulness at the efforts of his own people were severely lacking as well, as the Cheka was directed to arrest virtually every member of the group who weren't already living in exile. But the ungratefulness of the Bolsheviks was overshadowed by their shamelessness when the end of the famine started to appear. By early 1923, it had become apparent that the relief efforts had been a success. The 1922 harvest had been great, and the import of seed grain was enough that future harvests could be planted normally. The government, though, quite liked the idea of American relief and hid the good news as well as it could, requesting that the ARA stay on and help feed the population. This little bit of chicanery was found out, though, in early 1923, when it was discovered that the Bolsheviks had resumed the export of grain abroad. This caused an uproar among the Americans, to which the Bolsheviks lamely explained that the foreign currency earned from the exports was needed in order to secure future harvests. Nobody went for that explanation, and donation money coming from America dried up almost overnight. The ARA had been an organization partially funded by the U.S. government, but much of its funding came from private donations as well. And they weren't too happy about being chumped by the communists when news broke out. Luckily, the famine had actually passed, and when the Americans shut down the last of their operations in June 1923, they were out of the danger zone. This ended the first peaceful interaction between Soviet Russia and the United States, and both were happy to be rid of each other for the moment. It also saw the end of what sadly will not be the last famine I talk about in Russia on this show, but thankfully the last one for this season. As you might imagine, the disasters of the famine did nothing to further endear the peasantry to the communist government. It had sapped the countryside of its ability to resist said government, and a terrible peace did settle in, but all through the 20s, the rural areas would remain distant from the central government. Not distant in the sense that Moscow couldn't roll into a village if they so chose, but rather in the sense that the farming communities didn't want a whole lot to do with this government they found themselves under. The era of NEP would see productivity of the farms increase, but with the Bolsheviks cowed by the long years of famine in the first five years of their governance, they kept an uncharacteristically hands-off stance towards the countryside. This distance wasn't quite monolithic, though. While the old communal structures carried over into the local peasant Soviets, there were some dissenters. Usually these were Red Army veterans, uh, men who had a stake in the new regime. Oftentimes they brought with them their wives, emancipated and willing to speak at local assemblies. 
They were in the distinct minority, mind you, but they were there and provided a slender link with the new society developing elsewhere and the continuously insular farmlands of the new nation. The famine, like so many other disasters to hit Russia in these years, also spurned other developments in society beyond the simple struggle to obtain food. I described in episode 95 that early interactions between the party and church had not been as hostile as might have first been imagined. The estates of the church had definitely been seized, although the party hardly had to authorize that for the land-hungry peasants, and propaganda was definitely anti-clerical. And while many of the higher clergy were targeted for arrest and or execution, those cases were usually ones where the clergy decided to side with the whites. For the church's part, its leadership was solidly anti-communist and vocally pushed that stance. And while Lenin had hoped that the church would simply shrivel and die, the institution had not seen an appreciable drop in attendance, which by 1921 meant that it was still a vocal opposition in a land that had otherwise been swept as such things, and therefore needed to go. The famine turned out to be a handy pretext, and yet another example of Lenin turning the misfortune of others to his advantage. The church had been active in collecting and donating what it could to relieve the misery of the people, but it withheld its consecrated objects like crosses and icons, including those made of precious metals. Lenin decided to publicly call it the church and demand they turn over all their gold and silver, sanctity be damned. The cry was, turn the gold to bread. Patriarch Tikhon tried to compromise by promising to come up with an amount of equivalent value to all the sacred items. Lenin, though, was more interested in bringing the church to heel. On February 26, 1922, a decree was issued to collect all precious metals from the churches. In almost 1,500 examples, the parishioners stood up to support their churches and violently clashed with the government. It didn't do them any good. The local communists ordered armed squads to disperse the crowds and systematically looted the churches. Over 7,000 of the clergy died in these clashes. By March, the Politburo decided enough was enough and voted to end the looting. Problem with that decision was that Lenin wasn't around to vote that day, and he wasn't done. He ordered from his dasha a campaign of even more brutal repression, linking in his mind the church and the reactionary Black 100s, which by that point were long since a non-entity. If you're picking up on the past several episodes a thread of Lenin getting meaner and meaner, we're going to talk about that next week. A further 8,000 clergy were killed during the rest of 1922, and over 10,000 were imprisoned, with Patriarch Tikhon coming under a house arrest himself. This assault on the church effectively knocked out its leadership, and in an institution as big as the church, this created a bit of chaos. There emerged a group of priests in May 1922 who called themselves the Renovationists, who among other things wanted to throw in with the new regime. This was encouraged by the Czech at the time, even as they were persecuting the church as a whole. The group was informal and decentralized, but with Tikhon isolated, about two-thirds of the parishes became affiliates. Their platform doesn't seem too extreme on the surface, mostly joining the government and switching to the Gregorian calendar and moving from Church Slavonic to modern Russian. But as is usually the case when pushing sweeping changes in a Christian church, this started a near schism. Turns out, the actual Congregationists weren't too keen on the changes, maybe seeing the church as their rock in the storm of changes already surrounding them. 
This revolt from the faithful undermined the movement, and when Patriarch Tikhon caved and pledged his loyalty to the Soviet state, that same state ceased its support of the renovationists in 1923. Conveniently, Tikhon's own health would fail him, and by April 1925, he was dead. His replacement, Sergei, would make his own peace with the communists in 1927, opting to swear public loyalty to the Soviet Union in exchange for an end to the persecutions. And by that point, the fire had gone out momentarily within the government for the persecutions, and after a half-decade, the communists declared a temporary retreat. The hostile propaganda against religions of all kinds would continue, but an uneasy peace on religion did settle in. Stalin would, of course, blow the whole thing wide open again, but he did that with everything. Most of the hostility during these years was confined to the baseline Russian Orthodox Church. This was, after all, the institution most riddled with supporters of the Old Order, even though, as I described way back in episode 79, it was one that had been taken for granted towards the end there. Other denominations, like Protestants, were treated with a lighter touch, though they had less institutional power to tear down as well. Even the Old Believers, the breakaway branch of Russian Orthodoxy dating back to the 1500s, was treated more leniently. Again, because not only were they not plugged into the old power structure, they were often targets of it themselves. That isn't to say they were embraced as friends, far from it. They were treated with just as much distrust and derision, just with a lighter hand. This treatment wasn't just restricted to Christians either. Jews also fell afoul of the regime, and 800 synagogues were shut down over four years, which put to shame the anti-Semitic claim that the revolution was a Jewish plot. It took a bit longer for campaigns to get going against Muslims, but once the outlying areas where Islam was in the majority came under more stable governance, changes started to be implemented. The big ones imposed for Moscow were in the school systems. One of the big accomplishments of the Bolsheviks was in education, and that was due to intense state interest in extending a basic education to the entire population. This also meant providing a modern, secular education, and as such, the Islamic schools came under assault. By the mid-20s, most Muslims were given public schooling, and specifically Islamic institutions had dwindled to a shadow of their former selves. The populace was in a situation where they could practice religion if they so chose, but the institutions they subscribed to were curtailed from intervening in secular affairs, and while it did not sweep that element of culture away completely, it did force it off to the side, unable to influence the course of society as it had before. The state also sought to build up its own institutions to counter religious influence and draw the people to rational atheism. In 1925, a League of the Godless was founded, renamed in 1929 to the even more dramatic-sounding Militant Godless. It was a state-run organization of trained agitators who would actively push atheistic arguments in the press, in public speeches, and through propaganda. They were basically a group of posters and reply guys meant to hound religious discourse in the Soviet Union. These guys appealed to the younger crowds, those looking to break away from their traditional lifestyles, or those who during the Civil War had seen a bit more of the broader world. Everyone else, well, not so much. The old problem of a lot of new Bolsheviks being really poorly trained in their own theory reared its head, and those posters and reply guys came off about as well as they do in modern day, which is to say, a little off-putting. It didn't help, too, that religious folks started dressing themselves up in secular institutions to disguise themselves, either. Smaller groups could pose as self-organized worker or farmer collectives and avoid a lot of official scrutiny. 
ultimately the real elimination of religion and normal life would come under Stalin. His policies of rapid industrialization called for urban planning that excluded religious buildings, and the collectivization of the farms meant that the parish priests could be disposed of, which is all something we'll be getting around to next season. And since this has turned out to be kind of a grab bag episode, before I go, I want to cover one more depressing topic of these years. The plight of the orphans. I've spent over a dozen episodes describing the battles and societal breakdowns that occurred over these years, and even after all the dying, there was still a great deal of pain left behind. Orphan children were a growing concern even in the pre-war years. Oh boy, did everything after 1914 make that problem a crisis. By the end of the Civil War, there were close to 7 million kids living homeless and without families as a result of the fighting and the famines. They either learned to live hard or died in the process. With state resources stretched to the breaking point just trying to feed the populace, the flood of unattended children was simply too much to cope with. While a league for the rescue of children was set up in 1919 with the approval of the government, it would only barely treat the problem and could only aid a half million kids. Which was a lot, but keep in mind the scale here. Three quarters of the seven million were boys, and they rapidly created their own subcultures as the Civil War raged around them. Banding together into makeshift gangs and tribes, they rapidly created their own lingo and rules. They also did anything to survive, including stealing and turning to prostitution. They would cripple themselves to get an advantage in the begging game, and the gangs would make alliances with the more adult members of the underworld. And as I said, they lived hard, turning to drink and drugs. And when I say these guys were kids, I mean just that. I'm talking anywhere from walking age to early teens here. Maxim Gorky would complain to Lenin that there were prepubescents that had multiple murders to their names. This was reflected by the readiness of the youth to join the Red Army, and large numbers of teenagers signed up. They had grown up in a world of violence. It only made sense to them to join in with it. Army life became the traditional outlet for the youth with nowhere to go. In exchange for killing on command, they received clothes, food, and access to educational materials. And usually, the Red Army officers took pity on their younger charges, acting as parental figures during their time in the service. I'm not going to defend the effectiveness of that mentoring or offer it up as a valid substitute for actual parenting, but it wasn't nothing. The larger population wasn't blind to all this going on. After all, it was something they saw in the streets every day. And once able, every effort was made to help make a life for the destitute youth. In 1923, communes began to be established to ease the orphans away from street life. These were labor organizations meant to transition the orphan groups to be productive components of society and open doors to viable professions as those orphans grew up. This led to a shrinking of the orphan population, so that by the end of the decade, the homeless child population was down to 200,000. Still not great, but a damn sight better than 7 million. That isn't to say that those who went through government services had a great time, though. Food was scanty, because of course, and living conditions amongst the orphan communes were rough, to say the least. But it did give the kids a future, one that many would take advantage of. I'll be covering the communist ideas towards family in future episodes, but rest assured the idea of dislocated youth, whose only parental figure was the state, held a certain appeal to the communists' intent on dissolving the old idea of family entirely. Again, Out of all the chaos and misery, the Bolsheviks found another opportunity for experimentation. 
and that idea of changing the way people lived is something I'll be picking up again on very soon. With the echoes of the Civil War now fading from our narrative, it's time to finally move forward and look at the new state in action. Next week, we finally get to the formation of the Soviet Union, and the controversy surrounding putting the jigsaw of the old Russia back together in a properly socialist manner. And beyond that, there is the transformation of Russian society under communism and the reaction to the liberalization of the NEP, plus all the controversies among the communist leadership that went along with it. Even with the Civil War in the rearview mirror, there is still a lot to cover in this miniseries. Join me next week as peacetime in communist Russia really gets underway, and as always, thank you very much for listening. Thank you.